Hi, welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today, the British manager. This could take quite a while, so, you know, if I were you, I'd, I'd get comfortable. Now, th there's a lot of angst at the moment in, in our culture, our, our football culture, about the, the decline of British management. And the ideas, because <clears throat> so much has happened in since the Premier League was started, sort of ninety two, ninety three, and there's this indelible viewpoint that it's British management declining. It is almost, you know, it's going to be extinct within a generation. And there's 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 an element of truth to it, but it, it never sees the bigger picture. I, I think the first question you've really got to ask is like, well, has the British manager really declined in the Premier League? Yes, in terms of numbers, but in terms of opportunity, that, that's really what you've got to look at. So, I mean, even for the prep work for this podcast, is that I wrote down the list of all the English Premier, British Premier League managers that I could think of, and then sort of what clubs they've been at, and yeah, you just you, what, and then sort of circled the ones where there were big clubs. So you look at it, you've got someone like, let's say Sherwood. You know, he's had the Spurs job. That's a big job. That's a top six, top four opportunity, Champions League, going for the title. That That is the potential that was there when he was at the club because the guy that replaced him has gone on to do that. First season, Pochettino's there. Carling Cup final. Okay, they lose. Push up in the league, qualify for Europe. The next season, competing for the league title, Champions League, top three. This year, similar situation. So he's had that opportunity. He, it didn't go well, but he's had that opportunity. So you take, okay, take Redknapp. You know, he's had the West Ham job, Portsmouth job twice, Southampton, Spurs, big opportunity. QPR, he's tried to go for the England job. He takes on, you know, any number of these people. You know, like Rogers has had the Liverpool job. Big Sam at Newcastle, West Ham to an extent. Hughes at Man City. Martin O'Neill at Villa. You know, Uncle Roy at Liverpool and the England job. You know, Strachan at Celtic. All of these people have had big opportunities. And they have, and to a varying degree, they haven't quite taken these opportunities. You know, you can even say McLaren at Wolfsburg, Newcastle. Yeah, they've all had huge opportunities. And they haven't really taken it on. They haven't gone to that sort of next level. I mean, some of them have had success. I mean, obviously, Coleman at... The Euros got them to the semis. Then Martin O'Neill's qualifying for tournaments with Ireland. I mean, she's had some success out Wales. They've all had varying degrees of success. They've all had managed lots of clubs. A lot of them near enough sort of top ten. Or they, there's opportunities there for them. They haven't, you know, in a lot of cases they haven't taken them. But that doesn't mean they're not there. It doesn't mean that they that big teams haven't. Liverpool have. Spurs have. You know, you have to remember that for a lot of years you've had Wenger and Ferguson at United and Arsenal. So there hasn't been that kind of opportunities. You know, of the Chelsea job is a slightly different scenario. In other words, that they've chopped and changed a lot, and as a result, and because of all the money involved, it, it wasn't. It's not the job that they're going to give to a starter. They're always going to want, you know, a foreign manager with a certain amount of heft, or at least the idea of potential. So. You know, it is slightly limited, and obviously the way how Man City have trended in a similar you know situation since Mark Hughes you know got sacked and replaced by Mancini. But okay, even if you take the the Man City one, you can understand entirely why they got rid 
got Mark Hughes. He'd had the opportunity, he'd had some money. He had had a great deal of time, but he had all of the opportunities. You just you knew that they were going in the right direction, that they were going to put money. They were always going to qualify for the Champions League, and the idea was they were going to win the league. You can't put that sort of four, five hundred million pounds into an outfit and not win the league. But what the luxury he doesn't have is time. So in other words, he's got to change that job to fit what the owners are asking him to do. And he doesn't quite do it. it the football never quite gets the level, the consistency. And as a result, that he doesn't have behind him the level of success, regular success, that actually allows them to believe in him. In other words, Mancini does. He's won league titles. He might, in the long term, end up pissing off every single one of his players, but that's the, the medium term, the longer term. He might he doesn't have a great record in Europe, but in the short term what he can do is he can get them into shape, get them competing for that top four position. They don't quite make it, but the point was is when Crouch scores that goal at the City of Manchester and Spurs qualify for Europe, they've won the battle, but there's just no chance that they're going to win the war because you're not because City will spend that money and will overtake them and then go straight past them, which is pretty much what has sort of taken place. So you then we then have to sort of pull it back. We've seen that British coaches have had lots of opportunities. They've, they've had lots of job offers. There's still a presence in the league. What we have to understand is why this has taken place. Why, have we get, why does we have 95 where there's virtually no foreign managers in the league to the point where we have now lots of managers, foreign managers? And there's a consensus that the English manager is declined. The British manager is in retreat. And 95 is the perfect sort of year because essentially you take the post-war years, that 50 years from 45 to 95, and the British manager is at, is at its fundamental peak for lots of varying reasons. But the best way of looking at it, if you want to sort of... Ferguson is probably your peak manager because he straddles that entire period. So in other words, he has the you know, growing up in a sort of wartime existence. He grows up, you know, he then starts playing in the 60s and sort of finishes his career in the early 70s, then gets into management and retires, you know, well into the, you know, the, the 21st century. So in, in many ways, he covers all that whole period in some way, form or other. In other words, he grows up with certain qualities in other words, I always see Ferguson as the last of the Mohicans. He's the last of that m last really brilliant, successful manager that comes from the golden era of British management, because he's the one that basically is a part of every, gets a part of every single bit the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, and beyond. But he's not defined by it. It's like if you compare him with uh, Clough. Clough's career ends ridiculously early. He's in his early twenties. Bad ta you know, has a tackle for a keeper, wrecks his, I think it's his knee, his career is pretty much over within a couple of years. And he gets into management. But he, for all of his maverick genius that you see in the self promotion, which is, you know, in the 60s and 70s, very modern, he's actually at heart a traditionalist. In other words, his best, 
his managerial genius comes from, you know, he's got Peter Taylor, who basically covers for some of his weaknesses, and as a pair, they, they've got this talent. They pick up these teams. So they pick up, a, you know, they start at Hartlepool's. They take the S off about halfway through his managerial career there, I believe. He does well there, which then leads to the natural progression, which is basically a talent pipeline, which says, well, go to Derby. You've got some history there. You've got the stadium and there's potential. But, you, you know, you it's just it's a lottery ticket situation. They've, they've got this bright manager. Let's see what he can do. They haven't got really much to lose at this point. They're well down in you know the doldrums of Division 2. You know, Peter Taylor comes on. And then he just takes them up. And then he, you know, he has the apex moment where he falls out with the chairman, walks out, which is a you know, relatively modern conception even in sort of the mid-70s. Has that kind of dip where you know, he goes to Brighton for the money and it just wasn't... None of the bits and pieces that you would need for him to work at Brighton are there. They're too far down in the league. He spent too many years at the top to really... And, you know, it's just unlikely and it fails, falls flat on its side. You can see it from a mile off that it wasn't going to work. Finally, you know, goes to to Nottingham Forest. Similar situation, Derby, and does the same thing over again. But there's an element of traditionalism. In other words, his viewpoint of the world is quite traditional. So, in other words, when, you know, he deals with a gay player, he just doesn't deal with it very well. Even in later years, he admitted he sort of dropped the ball on that one. He's also, you know... The way how he manages is very old school, which means that really, even though he is young when he has this success, so even when he retires, he's not particularly old. He's just not capable by the early 90s when the Premier League starts. He's not able to adapt to it. He's too long in the tooth. His methods and are gone. In other words, modern football just does clough in. On many different levels. But Ferguson, who's only, you know, similar sort of situation in terms of age and experience, is able to fly through. In other words, the, the mid the early 90s are when things start to really have success for him. So then we have to go back another step then. So we, we've seen that, you know, these sort of managers were able to start small. So Ferguson starts at East Sterling, then has success at Aberdeen takes that to Man United, then goes on from there. But what you then need to do is then sort of look at these, the first sort of set of great managers. And what similarities, what is their process and how do they, how do they become, how do they define the British manager? So you, you start thinking that, so you start with someone like Shankly. So he takes Liverpool, you know, who've had some success in the previous sort of, you know, 30 years, but at that point still, we're based in the doldrums of Division 2. You know, he builds it from the ground upwards. He then adds the coaching staff, the players, and there's there's an... Um, the, the 50s and 60s until... Yeah, 50s and 60s manager has just huge levels of control. He controls the players. He's got them under contract. He's the one that organises you know, their salary. So you know, they negotiate at the end of the season. They've got the reserve clause. So, in other words, the players are the owner. The ownership of the players is with the club, not the individual player. And so, and there's a you can keep players for longer. 
So you, you, and the manager has complete control of how he organises the club. Which is why, if you then go on to someone like Revy, similar situation. He goes to Leeds, they're in doldrums of Division 2, and then they, they, can, they always start sort of somewhere near the bottom and then build. And they've got complete control. They're architects. In other words, one of the, the things that is fascinating is how all of those sort of 50s and 60s managers, who we always think are pretty tough, stoic, you know, old school, there's always an element of the brand manager in it. They imagine their clubs, and this is what's so brilliant. They always change the kit. In other words, Busby at United, you know, United were playing red shirts, white shorts, red socks. He says, well, too many clubs look like that. It, you know, Man United don't stick out enough. So he immediately changes it and goes, well, actually, we'll play in black socks with, you know, white and red, you know, kind of hoops at the top. We'll look different. So in other words, you can just tell Man United from first glance at the television screen. Revy does it at Leeds. Their traditional colours are um, yellow and blue. Quarters. No. Changes it to all white, you know, to ape the Real Madrid team of the Great Real Madrid team of the fifties and sixties. You know, Billy Nicholson does that at Spurs. He comes in, the club have you know had some success. They've got you know in the fifties under Arthur Rowe, but it's petered out. He immediately comes in, organizes the club, gets it where he wants, buys the players, builds it, and then when they play in Europe, they play in all white. It's a different, so it creates some a different atmosphere at White Hart Lane, and that's it. They're not just managers. They're really two different managers. They're two different roles. You've got the general manager. So they're doing the contracts. They're buying the players. They're doing a lot of the scouting. They're the ones who negotiate the contracts. You know, the, ma- the, the owners, you know, they sign the, the bills. They, they play a role in terms of the stadium and bits and pieces like that. But they're not activists. You know, the best, the only time that you really get activist owners is really Sam Longston at Derby. And that's because just Brian Clough is so much of a maverick, he's spending so much money that he almost literally just gets rid of Brian Clough just to get him out of his hair and just to get some form of control back on Derby. Okay, there was an ego clash, but part of the reason is is that he just wants an easier life and he finds, you know, when he replaces Clough, he brings in Dave McKay. They have similar levels of success, but it's a lot more easier on him. And, you know, whereby with Clough, you're dealing with a maverick. And that's, so that's the, and, you know, obviously Shankly changes the Liverpool kit to all red, so it stands out. So in other words, they've, they're tough bastards, but they've got a concept, and they, they build that concept of a football club, and they become part of the club and the fabric of it. Which, now we look at it, you've seen that with Wenger. You've seen that to an extent with Ferguson. But now, in the modern Premier League, that's not really likely. Or you can't, you know, if you're going to join a top four club, the infrastructure is already there. So it's not a case of building it up from the bottom and then putting yourself right as the architect and the... I suppose, cultural leader of it. In fact, what you've got, your skills that you, that basically got those managers through won't really work today. And, and that's, even in those managers, they have this brilliant success in the 60s. And turn it, but by the time the 70s get around, things are changing. In other words, those managers, their coaching style has an 
has a military feel to it. They're NCOs, PTs, personal trainers, personal fitness instructors. That's kind of what they do. And their conception of the players is completely different. They like, And that's why those managers by the mid-70s mainly have all kind of faded away to an extent. You know, Remy takes the money and goes out to the Middle East. Billy Nick pretty much, you know, is done, done at Spurs and goes on to West Ham, but nowhere near the same level of, of success. And then you contrast it with some of the big clubs. So in other words, in the early 70s, mid to the early 70s, United go down, Spurs go down, Chelsea go down. All of those, it, it's a sea change ring. The players are different. So in other words, the players of the 70s, they're, they're, they're not people that have had any experience. They're post-war. So in other words, the 60s and the, the counterculture revolution of that and the changing of society means that you know, for the, the, they always come up against these old school managers who've got a lot more discipline, who have a lot more sort of working class attitudes and are, are more traditionalist. And they just find it, these players impossible. They've got long hair. You know, they, they start being a bit more commercial. In other words, they start signing in some elements of endorsement deals. They have a higher... They have more media attention. You know, they have a higher profile. And that's why that kind of generation, it leaves imprints. So you have people like Ferguson. So now there's one of the reasons why Ferguson is successful, because he has many of the quality, sort of working-class managerial dominance... That some of these, uh, that the, you know, the Revies, the Shankleys, the Nicholsons, the Busbys have. But he's also grown up and played as a player in the late 60s and 70s. So he's not completely immune to the counterculture side of it. So in other words, he, when he gets into management in the 70s and then starts progressing in the sort of early 80s at um, Aberdeen, he has some of that sensibility. So in other words, he's able to adapt to the changes that is happening in football. And one of the reasons why he's successful in England is because of the European band. So in other words, his Aberdeen teams, and a lot of Scottish managers of that time, that's when Scottish football had a quite a bit of European success, like Dundee United, Aberdeen, they have, they have these long sort of cup runs. So in other words, by the time he's got to England, he's not only dealt with a successful Aberdeen team full of internationals, he's also managed in Europe, where a lot of the managers in England haven't really. So the generation that kind of apexes in the sort of early 90s to mid 90s the, the players who become managers haven't played in Europe they the, the older managers haven't really managed in Europe so as a result when you know the money starts getting into football where you start having European football becomes more larger there's more TV they're not particularly well prepared so in other words the the bits and pieces that made football British managers successful isn't really there. So that generation are vulnerable and Ferguson's the one who really kicks on and has the level of success. In the early 90s, the British managers don't. You've got you know, Howard Wilkinson at Leeds in 91 when they, they win the last football champion, football league before it becomes the Premier League. But that's, you can see, by 93, cloughs out. You, know, if you, you can't really compare the 91 Leeds team that wins the, the Division 1 to modern football. It's just... It's not. They've come up from Division 2 a couple of years earlier. They've got some young players. They've got Can you know, Cantona, you know, as the difference, really. But that's, you know, that's no more different than, you know, the 
Dutch players at Ipswich in the early 80s and late 70s and Ardiles and Villa. It's, it's a lot more backward-looking than it is forward-looking, which is why, in respect, Leeds don't particularly crack on, whereby Ferguson does. Which then really sort of leads... The, 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 which is where the, the decline of the England manager, English manager is quite interesting. Because actually, the 70s and 80s, the managers have changed. It's a new generation of manager coming through. And at some point, they still have many of the, the links to the old ways. In other words, the processes. So in other words, let's say you take Bobby Robson. His way of succeeding is quite similar to Alf Ramsey's. So Ramsey is a good player at Spurs, a couple of other clubs, gets into management, goes to Ipswich, builds them from the bottom up, takes them up, wins the league in 62. Bobby Robson does a similar sort of thing, turns up at Ipswich, gets them up, builds them up, gets them into Europe, has success. But he's a completely, you know, there are similarities between Ramsey and Robson. But Robson is a different character and has a different way of going about things. So in other words, when I was talking about the 70s and some of these big clubs declined and they got relegated, and they were sort of replaced in the public consciousness by Derby's and Nottingham. In other words, th those teams, you, all you needed to do was to have the sort of genius of a Brian Clough. In other words, they basically turned up, they could buy some players because there was no such thing as transfer windows. You only had the uh, end of April when you had the basically, you had the registration deadline. And it just took one great manager who could then push you up, get you to win and win on a regular basis. So the difference is, is that... Even though some of the elements, some of the, the key parts of what makes a great British manager are, are slowly declining in the 70s and 80s and going into the 90s, British management still actually has success. It has this great run in the 80s. and 90s, you've got Robson goes to Porto, he goes to PSV Eindhoven, he goes to Barcelona, he has success. Terry Venables goes to Barcelona, takes them to a European Cup final. Toshak's had success out in Spain. So... They're exporting, even though it's declining, but no one really realises it necessarily at the time. Which is why you then get to this 95-97 generation. So in other words, you know, basically, I would shut the door at the old school British manager round about 95. So in other words, if you're not in management by 95, you have this generation. So you've got Big Sam. Martin O'Neill, sort of Steve Bruce, you've got Hewton, I'd say you've got Pardew, Pulis, and Moyes. So they're the generation, but so in other words, most of those players haven't played European football, haven't had particularly brilliant careers. I mean, you'd have to say Hughes has had a great career, but the rest of them on that list, Steve Bruce had a pretty good career, but and Strachan, but a lot of those managers are sort of lower leagues. So Pardew, you know, he's in 90, something about 89, oh, early 80s, leaves Joville, becomes a professional footballer at 25 with Palace, has some success at Palace, goes down to Barnet, takes over at uh, Reading. 
You've then got Pulis, who goes around sort of, you know, a few different clubs in the lower leagues. But they're not really, in many ways, prepared for the future. In other words, when you get to the future, so you've got, by the mid-90s, you've got Sky, Money, foreign players, foreign managers, Bosman, activist owners. That's a little, the activist owners are a little bit later, but the, the sea change is coming, and they're not particularly prepared. In other words, they're still essentially go, going up through the lower leagues and building things and trying to build teams and push them up. You know, but even that's slightly changed. In other words, Reading have the brand new stadium, Majeski Stadium. They're spending quite a bit of money, even though they're in the second division. You then get, you know, Pulis at Stoke, Allardyce at Bolton. Those things are starting to change, but they're still trying to use the same process. But there's now a difference. In other words, in the 70s and 80s, you could, within three or four years, pick a team down at the bottom and take them up just by sheer genius and using, you know, young, talented players in the lower leagues. That's starting to change now. The money is starting to have an impact. You know, people, you now have, to, whereby, that's where one of the reasons where Wenger is so successful. Because he has this knowledge of French football and foreign players that no other, that none of these managers that I've just listed have. So in the other words, you know, Jerry Francis does, is, is an interesting manager. He has su- elements of success at Spurs. But the one thing that he isn't able to do by 96, 97, when he's pretty much on the verge of getting sacked, is he can't utilise the foreign markets. He's not really prepared for that. The club aren't here. The infrastructure, the scouting isn't there. So in other words, it really is potluck. It's like when you know, Ren Naps at West Ham. They sign a load of foreign players. Some of them, like Florian Radichoy, Marco Bugas, fail spectacularly and they're just not you know danny to an extent they're just potluck signings if they work they work if not never mind whereby wenger is using it almost like a a science in effect and so that's where it's changing in other words what british managers are still trying to do and are trying to replicate it is a world that is just changing. In other words, they want full control of the transfer budget. They want years to develop the squad. They, you know, in some respects, they almost, they need to basically have enough political capital to do what they want to do. It's a slow process. Like uh, Eddie Howe came out with something fantastic a few few weeks ago. He was talking about look when we sign a player, we don't necessarily assume they're going to do well for the first twelve to eighteen months. But once they understand how we play then they get better and then they become part and it's a great and interesting idea but you can't do that if you're at a top four club so in other words if Eddie Howe takes the Arsenal job he's not in the position where he can just pitch up at the Emirates say look I've got 75 million pounds I'm going to buy this this and this player and in two years hopefully God willing and my coaching style will mean that they're all part of the team and successful you can't, in the modern game, where you have six, seven, possibly eight teams all competing for four Champions League spots, you don't really have the ability to spend one or two years bedding players in like the the Cloughs, the Revies could sort of do. Because they're working in a time when there was 24 teams, when there wasn't as many European Cup spaces, or European spots in general, 
which meant that you could spend four or five years developing. In other words, it was cyclical. In other words, you say, well, actually, we've got two or three young players. In three years, 75, let's say, that's going to be our year when we can compete. You can't do that in the modern game to the same extent. Where you can do it is, you know, as how was shown, at Bournemouth. But that's the problem. You then hit the glass ceiling of you can only take Bournemouth that far. So in other words, when Eddie Howe, where he has, you know, he's got the affection of the fans, the owners, he's got a lot of political capital to do what he wants and people will follow without question, really. But then it's why he then, when he goes to Bort, when he goes to Burnley, it doesn't quite work and, you know, within a few months it's all gone horribly wrong and he's back at Bournemouth. It's not that what he did at Burnley was that wrong. It's just that where what he's trying to do really can only work where he's got that total control. And owners these days aren't willing to give that total control. It's one of the things that makes Abramovich a very interesting owner is that he's developed a system where actually the manager is important but not key. In other words, he's had success with Mourinho a couple of times. He's had success with Ancelotti. He's had certain respect. He's had success with Rafa the Gaffer and Roberto Di Matteo. He's now having success with Conti. The point is the manager is actually, at that point, not that important. He will just get another great manager because the infrastructure, the stadium, the fans, the, the youth system and the way of buying young players and buying experienced players is there. The core is still there. In other words, for years, Chelsea got by on Terry, Lampard, Ashley Cole, Gary Cahill to an extent. So the manager wasn't actually that important, which is completely sacrosanct to the idea of the British manager where it is. Revy, Busby, Jock Sting. The idea that the manager being unimportant is just completely sacrilegious to these people. Which then... Which is one of the interesting things. Look at the, one of the successes of the British management structure is the Anfield boot room. So, like I said, when all of these clubs, you know, the bigger clubs were getting relegated and you had these new pretenders coming through, the Liverpool system is the one that keeps churning out managers, keeps having success. But it's not future-proof. In other words, once you get to the, the early 90s, when things are starting to change, when the... Empire is starting to slowly crumble at Liverpool. Once Dalglish goes, it then goes, it gets messy. They go with Souness and that doesn't quite work. They then end up with Roy Evans. And it's that all that talent Liverpool had in the 90s, they just aren't ever able to make that step up. They end up winning the FA Cup in 92 against Sunderland, 95 Coca-Cola Cup final against Bolton. Both of those teams were first division teams. And then by 98, it finally collapses. And it probably collapsed, yeah, it lasted seven years longer than it probably should have done when they bring in Gerard Ullier as joint manager, <laughs> which inevitably ended up with Roy Evans being pushed out the door. So I, th I think what I'm going to... So this is, this is the interesting thing. I think... The classic one I found interesting was when Pulis left Palace. So he turned up at Palace, somewhat unexpectedly. They'd started the season off terribly. He comes in and he just he gets that team, organises them, and plays in a, a sort of brand of football that was a bit more interesting than people expected. When Pulis turns up at 
Palace. I think most people's assumption was, well, he's just going to grind it out. They'll get tight at the back, tough, physical, lots of set pieces. The sort of Stoke principle that we'd seen for a lot of years. And he'll you know, hopefully get them out of it. <laughs> but he, he does show a, a, a hint of flexibility. He sees that he's got, you know, in Punchin and Balassi. Uh, you know, he's got these kind of talented players. And he, you know, basically gives them a bit more of a freer reign than any of the sort of talented players that Stoke ever had. Obviously, the Palace, those sort of players, have a bit more than anybody at Stoke to an extent. And they play, and they kind of, you have that great result where they come back against Liverpool. But, and you think, well, actually, okay, he's kept them up, he's keeping the job. This could be interesting. Is he going to, you know, evolve? Is he going to become a bit more proactive, buy a few more, you know, sort of attacking players? And then he leaves. He leaves at the start of the season. Bizarrely. And we've, we've obviously had that court case where he's obviously tried to get the bonus. In other words, he was so desperate to get out, he was more than willing to basically not wait two weeks to get the £2 million loyalty bonus. You know, he tries to, you know, what the legal people said, seems to come up with a, an excuse and a story to get the money and then leave. Well, why is that, Palace? You know, there's a lot of, you know, the chairman's proactive, they've got some talented players, the sort of Croydon Corridor produces huge amounts of young talent. There is potential at Palace, you've got the, uh, a wide supporter base. Why does he leave? And I think the intro, and why does he then go to, to West Brom, which seemingly enough is a, almost in certain respects, you know, West Brom have been in the league, Premier League, and are more established than Palace. That's undeniable. But there's less, you know, there is less potential there. And yet he goes there. And what I think is that in the end, at Palace, you've got the activist, you know, proactive chairman. He's not really fully convinced in Tony Pitt. He thinks he's done a great job in keeping them up, but he's not willing to give him the keys to the car and complete autonomy over how to run the club. So as a result, Pulis just doesn't want to know. It doesn't matter to him the, the potential and all the rest of it. He wants out. So he goes to West Brom. And then over the last two or three years, he's battled and battled. And now finally that they're having this you know, good, it's a potentially great season for a West Brom team. He's now the one finally, he's wrestled control. In other words, he, how he does it is how West Brom will operate. So that's the thing. He's looking for that sort of level of power. The same thing with sort of, to an extent, with you've got Sherwood and you've got Sweaterbest in Brendan Rodgers. Brendan Rodgers was always arguing against the, the transfer thing. He wanted full control. And yet the big modern clubs aren't really willing to, to give that sort of level of control to someone new, especially in Sherwood's case. He's an experience. This is his first managerial job. And the same thing with Rodgers. He, you know, he's gone at Reading and Watford, two relatively small clubs, at, and especially those clubs were small at the time, and Swansea, and he's had success. But he's never, there's not the transfer record, which is not so much of a problem as it, you know, back in the day for someone like Brian Clough, who actually had the knowledge of the players in the low leagues, or at least Peter Taylor did, as it, and then they took the money that they were given and spent it, whereby now... You've got transfer committees, you've got activist chairmen, you have directors of football. So the nature of the job has changed. And I think that's where the British manager has in some ways failed. They, they get all these opportunities, but they're never able to fully understand what the role of manager now is. It, you, you're not, the manager doesn't now change the kit 
to suit his own prerogative of what the team is. In other words, with Liverpool, with United, with Man City, with Tottenham, all Chelsea, the narrative's already there. Whereby the narrative wasn't there at Derby, it wasn't there at Nottingham Forest, and it wasn't there at Leeds and Liverpool in the 50s. Which is what, what's interesting. In other words, now the manager had to come in and have success pretty much straight off the bat. He has to use the players at his advantage. And he has to find some way of having success in, in the transfer market. In the end, what Roger does at Liverpool when he gets the Suarez money, he buys a bunch of players who end up being good. Not for Liverpool, though. It's like you notice Suso spent quite a bit of money on him. You know, he just wasn't... He wasn't a player that was going to have immediate success at the club. He was come from Spain. He's young. He's got. He's going into sort of that kind of playmaker role, which is always a tough one. You very rarely that a great Premier League team gives the keys to their out to their attacking emphasis on a young player who doesn't have experience. So in the end, he goes on loads of loan spells, leaves without making any form of kind of major impact. And now here he is at AC Milan, and he's playing fantastic football. The same thing happens with Iago Aspes, who's now brilliant at Celta Vigo. But that's it. He's, in his own mind, he's bought these players, known for their talent, but they're never going to be successful for Liverpool quick enough for him to keep the job. So they're, they're not really canny, which then leads you to what Rodgers does next. So he's left Liverpool, and he takes the Celtic job. Now... I know that he's from Northern Ireland, and there's an, a community element, a personal element of wanting to manage Celtic. I fully understand and respect why he's done that. But take away that and look at the actual hard reality is it is a terrible, lazy decision. It is basically taking a shortcut to a title because you look at Ronnie Delia and you look at, you know, who's not a great guy, who admits that he's probably well in over his head when he gets to Celtic. But he even still wins the league most years, you know, without too much problem. You've got Rangers who are all over the shop, who are probably four or five years away from meaningfully competing, at least on a player-by-player -player level. In terms of infrastructure, they are ten years behind Celtic. So it's not a challenge. And then you look at it and you think, well, okay, he's saying, like, oh, we can take Celtic back to where they were. And he's right, and he's wrong. The point is, is that Celtic have a place in the European pecking order. They have dominance at home in the domestic league, and they've had elements of success. Now, if you look at their previous managers, we talked about Delia. Let's go to Strachan and Martin O'Neill. Now, Strachan is currently the manager of Scotland, not doing particularly well. You know, he's had some elements of success at Coventry, some elements of success at Southampton, but, you know, overall, it's a relatively modest record. He's done well. He's got country to mid-table a couple of times. He got Southampton you know, to a cup final. He's done a, a good job, but nothing more. There wasn't anything that really jumped out of you and said that there was a reason for him to take a bigger job or, you know, or to really kick on as a manager. So he goes to Celtic, and look what happens when he goes there. They win a lot every single year, virtually. They get to the group stage, they get out of the group stage of the Champions they have a couple of great results, they'd be uh, Barcelona at home, famously and they, so they, they get knocked out in the, in the first knockout round of the Champions League, but that's an achievement and you know, you can't knock it but then you go back to Martin O'Neill who's predecessor 
what does Martin O'Neill? You know, he's had success at you know Villa after he left Celtic. He had success with Leicester, and he had success at Wickham. It's a very short spell at Norwich in about ninety four ninety five. Detail. Point is, he's had a good manager career, similar to, in a way to Strachan. Maybe a slightly better manager if you look at his success with Republic Island and then at Villa to an extent at Sunderland. He wins a lot there. And he takes them to the Euro- UEFA Cup final where they lose to Jose Mourinho's Porto. In other words, really, Rodgers isn't going to do that much better than either Strachan or O'Neill. And O'Neill and Strachan were in slightly stronger positions in terms of how much money there was for Celtic and where Scottish football was. In other words, Scottish football is a lot more weaker now than it was maybe 10, 15 years ago, which I think parrots what the success of the Scottish national team recently under Strachan. So in other words, even if he does his absolute level best, it's only going to be around about the same as Strachan and O'Neill. In other words, the point is, surely Brendan Rodgers, who's nearly won the Premier League with Liverpool, should aspire to slightly more than being a better version of O'Neill and Strachan. All he's going to look at now is, you can say, oh, yeah, he's won some trophies in Scotland where it's not a challenge. In other words, he doesn't take a job at another Premier League club and see if, and really attack it. Or he doesn't do what we all suspected he might, and go abroad. You know, this is the person, uh, the famous story about um, Rogers is a, a player's leaving by going somewhere else, and he uh, hands the uh, player uh, some training diagrams to give to his new manager, which is just, Pure arrogance. The player looks at it and goes, "Uh, boss, they're in Spanish. It's like, yeah. It's a challenge for the new manager. It's like, well, if if you've got that much... And if you look at his transfer policy at Liverpool, a lot of it was buying young Spanish players or players who played in Spain. He doesn't do it. Which then leads on to the next kind of question. Is that we've always got this obsession in England that somehow going abroad will, will broaden your horizons. And we've seen it. You've had McLaren at 20 winning the league. Doesn't do you know, a horrible spell at Wolfsburg. Goes horribly wrong. You've had Coleman at Real Oviedo. And you've had Neville at Valencia. And you've had Moyes at Real Sociedad. And yet, if you look at it, if you look at Moyes and you look at McLaren... And the way how they ma- their recent managerial travails, they none of them have seemingly been any different since coming back. I can't see any functioning difference between David Moyes pre Europe and David Moyes post Europe. I don't see a tremendous amount of difference in McLaren. In other words, they haven't learned. Whereby at least you could say when you know Kendall, when Venables, when Robson went out and came back, they were slightly different managers, they'd learned something. (sighs) Which, then obviously, you have to mention Neville, and you have to mention Giggs to an extent, because we've talked about the 95-97 generation, and the sort of problems that they had, that they, many of them hadn't had great careers in football, they'd had to, you know, build their managerial careers from the bottom upwards. So when things have changed, they were ill-prepared for the Premier League at the turn of the millennium. They've had success, but it's sort of limited success. In other words, it's taking unfashionable teams. So you talk about Bolton, you talk about Stoke and Bournemouth, and getting them stable into the Premier League, but not much else. They can't really sort of kick on. 
which then goes to the next generation. So you're talking about Giggs and Neville. So Giggs takes over and he's hero worshipped at United. He's been groomed as a potential replacement for Ferguson. And you can see the narrative. The fans are happy just because he isn't David Moyes. And yet he talks about the four games as being how pressurised and how awful and how shocked he was about how stressed he was. It's like, well, if you find four end-of-season games where Man United, at best, could only finish, you know, seventh, and they might possibly sneak a European place, you know, in the Europa League, what if that's pressure, when you're a legend and the fans love you and the players are happy, then probably management at some point isn't for you because that shouldn't be that much pressure. You, you've been nervous, and it's a new experience, but you've been assistant manager for the previous 34 games. The step up shouldn't be that shocking. In the same way that you have to then go with, with Neville. It's like, well, you know, you, the way how he's prepared for his managerial career isn't particularly effective. You know, he has the success at Sky, which gets him publicity, and but then he's then sort of he becomes sort of England assistant manager, but he, he, there's no real... Uh, the, the funny thing is is that he they interview a couple of the players, and it, it comes down to him and Sol Campbell, and obviously they pick Neville, and it's just like, well, you haven't really earned the position of assistant manager, however, they're trying to develop you, and I can see where you're going, and it's if you, you know that Uncle Roy isn't going to be there forever. And yet, in the end, he makes this really bizarre decision, which he seems almost based on some kind of, you know, he's got a business relationship with the owner of Valencia and takes over. But he doesn't speak Spanish. It's mid-season. Valencia, If when you turn up at Valencia, you see Mestalla and you see the half-built Mestalla 2, which may never be built. You can see that while this club has history and potential, they are an absolute mess. You know, it is a tough place for any, even an experienced manager, let alone someone who isn't prepared, who doesn't know the league, doesn't know the language, and unsurprisingly, although you know, he, they're, they're still in La Liga, so it's not that bad, but it was unlikely for him to pull it off, which then leads into the Euros, which is probably not the best preparation, and they flame out, and he's just decided, in certain respects, management isn't for him. And it's like, well, you've only really had proper management for about three months. And Giggs has only managed for four games. And yet these two people who should have all of the potential to be the next great kind of English-British managers, and without much of a, you know, they've just really flounced out. And that's, you know, that's, that's disappointing in so many different ways. And you then leads to kind of... Well, who's going to, you know, I'll talk in a minute, really, about the sort of positives and some of the negatives. But if we look at it, if you look at the opportunities, the, 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 let's say the 95, 97 kind of generation. So take Renap. I think Renap's a, a classic one. So he has all that, he has some success at West Ham and it's, it's very underappreciated. He, he took them fifth and he's obviously got. Rio Ferdinand come through, he helps develop Frank Lampard, Joe Cole, Carrick, Defoe, a whole cavalcade of British talent, and he falls out with Terry, Terry Brown, gets sacked, kind of had, you know, reinvents himself at Portsmouth, which was a you know, fairly ballsy move to go down to the south coast, you know, builds a sort of veteran team, keeps them up there, 
and he's, he's always sort of the, the reputation of being East End and you know wheeler dealer Harry always seems to sort of hold him back to an extent and even when he wins the FA Cup at Portsmouth because they're spending money and there's a sense that it's not <laughs> sustainable one way or the other and at, at some point he's been unfairly blamed I think for the the financial meltdown at Portsmouth is that he's the manager he's the one that's given the transfer budget it's not his responsibility for owning you know for the books that's the owners maybe he could have shown more foresight but which you know he's in a job where he can get sacked within a few months if the results go if someone give offers you the money you take the money and you do the best with it even if maybe in 5 10 years but that's you know you could then in that sense blame every single chelsea manager pretty much after hoddle because they were spending money and you know ken bates was drowning you know was drowning chelsea in debt and yet obviously in the end the, the white knight in terms of roman comes and saves them but you know, if you're going to blame Redknapp for it, then you have to start blaming Rude Hullet, Luca Vialli, I guess you know, Claudio Ranieri. And I don't see people doing that. So, but then Redknapp finally gets this opportunity. He's been linked with a few jobs. He always gets linked with a Newcastle job. And he sort of accidentally lucks into the Spurs role. You know, he's, the fans are a bit unsure to start off with. And yet, he builds this team and he... Turns out, a team that's you know inconsistent and pushes them on to further than many people believed Spurs could go in a short period of time. But then the, the, the tragedy kicks in. In other words, you know, he has, he's just taken, you know, the potential for him to finish above Wenger, which would damage Arsenal greatly, psychologically, financially, and just damage their potential for the next three or four years if they missed the Champions League they'd lose a few players and the boost it would have done to Spurs so he's on the verge and possibly you know of taking Spurs to regular Champions League and he's got the players in Bale and Modric but then the reputation comes back so he, he has the, the court case and he, he survives it. it it must be an, a, a mess because he's you know not at the training ground, it's getting huge amounts of media publicity. But he just about survives it. He's then got a sort of minor heart problem, which then obviously just throws a spotlight on his age. And he's but they still manage to just cling on. They're still trying, and then you have this England nightmare when Fabio Capello very petulantly leaves. And this is the interesting one because I I think. The FA have done a fairly good job of sort of whitewashing over what happened. In other words, they always said, oh, well, Roy Hodgson was our number one choice. I personally think that if you had a situation where the press and some of the senior players were behind Rednap and Rednap pretty much wanted the job, is that had Rednap resigned, let's say three days after Capello has resigned, He's available, he's free, he's England manager. I don't think the FA, even if they don't like, even if they don't like Redknapp, what choice do they have? He's English, he's got the record at Spurs, the history, the experience, everything's signed up and he's going to be cheap. You just pay him the money for his wages. The issue is, is that Redknapp, and this is where he fails. I wouldn't say fails, maybe that's the wrong term, but 
he doesn't see the bigger picture. He doesn't realise that the FA have a, you know, are reluctant. <laughs> and they are especially reluctant if they have to negotiate to get him through Daniel Levy. Because they just know that Levy has all of the, the, the cards and that he's going to extract a huge amount of money from them. Which then gives them the, the excuse to wait around a few weeks and then decide that actually they don't have the stomach for the fight. They don't want him that much. And if he's not going to resign, well, they then see Uncle Roy, who's a lot more to their tastes. And he's a lot cheaper and a lot more available. And then that happens. Which then by that time, though, the cumulative effect of those three things, three sort of dramas, and they finish fourth. They should have finished, you know, third. They don't. They, they're unlucky in the sense that Chelsea win the Champions League. But it's entirely avoidable. Which then means by this point, any kind of... You know, if he finishes third, Levy gives him a new contract. And because he's finished above Arsenal, Arsenal won in the Champions League. Happy days. You're not going to sack him at that point. That'd be an outcry because you didn't have to replace him. Why would you? But at this point, they've had enough of him. But that's... The, that's the whole point, is that these, a lot of these managers have these opportunities, like Moyes at United. No, the problem that Moyes has at United is that he believes he's got six years and that they're just going to, he's got the mandate to change. But he never sells it to the club. He never sells it to the fans or to the general public. He looks overwhelmed. His decision-making is slow. It's not decisive. In the end, I mean, one of the, the, the interesting things, there's an article about how he deals with his transfer policy. And he's got a you know, huge database, proprietary database, and they're covering all these players, that, you know, the, all the, the standards and the experts. In other words, if you want a left-back between 22 and 24, you know, who's pacey and over 5 foot 9, he could probably, there'd be a list of players in all the major European leagues and some of the less well-known South, uh, South Americans. He's got all of that information, he's got the analysts and all the rest of it. And yet when he goes to United, the first two people he tries to sign are Leighton Baines and Fellaini. They're just obvious. They're players with, who are limited upside. They're not going to get any better. And if by the end of the contract, they're likely not to be as good or as effective. And it's going to have an impact on the way how United see themselves. Their fans don't want to see them buying decent Everton players. They believe they should be signing world-class players to kick on and, you know, and fight against Man City. Which is why, in the end, he looks shocked when he gets sacked. It's like, well, he didn't have the power and the mandate. He hadn't had enough success at Everton for them to believe in him to give him two or three years. Because he doesn't sit there and say, well, actually, you know, maybe the first year isn't going to be great, but you're coming down off of the, you know, the Ferguson hangover. But what I'm going to do is, I, you know, we're going to change the infrastructure. So the way how the club signs people, the way how it scouts. We're going to promote a load of youth team players because we believe that they can be the next great Man United team. But that's what, he doesn't do that. It's a patch job. You know, he, he doesn't jump, he, do, he doesn't seem to get that his squad aren't as strong. Yes, they are champions, but they are champions in name only. They, they've, you know, they've, they've won the league off of, you know, the tail end of Ferguson and the fact the other teams are retooling but now the other teams in terms of Man City Chelsea they've all got new managers they've all spent money they're all better <laughs> and Man United are nowhere near which explains why they finished where they finished and 
And this is what it comes down to. All of these people have opportunities. You know, Pardew at Newcastle, he takes them to a European quarter-final. He takes them to fifth, sixth in the league. But he, it doesn't go on from there. I mean, a lot of that is, is Mike Ashley. But then he goes to Palace, where everything is sort of set up. They've got money. The fans love him. The owner. Yeah, they're trying to build the infrastructure. And they want him. They've given him this power. And it just doesn't work. I mean, the thing I think about Pardew and Crystal Palace more than anything else, probably, is that they tried to build too quickly. It ended up looking like a, a sort of bizarre show home. In other words, the front looks brilliant. A couple of the rooms look amazing. But the foundations are weak and unfinished. It just looks like the front of it looks amazing. If you go around the side, there's nothing else. It's like a... It's like a screen western where the, the, the town looks and then you turn around and it's just wood. You know, wooden billboards being held up and that's what happens really at Palace. There's no one really there sitting there from the fans, the board yeah, and the manager saying, well, actually, what we need to do is find a way to keep Palace in the league and slowly build. They're trying to get into Europe basically a year or two years after barely surviving in the Premier League. And that's why, in some ways, you know, they spend £30 million on a striker, they buy Mandana, the goalkeeper. But the, found, you know, the, the second things start going wrong, it just forms into a huge tailspin, and now they're at the stage where they've got Big Sam. I mean, we spoke, I spoke about Big Sam earlier in the week. One of the things I, I didn't really mention was that the two places he doesn't succeed are the two biggest clubs. But they've already got reputations and histories in Newcastle and West Ham. So the fact he isn't able, as a manager, to override that. In other words, West Ham, he, they're not willing to basically accept Allardyce ball over the traditions of, you know, Billy Bonds, the 1966 the, the great youth players that they brought in in the 90s. And I get that. The same thing is the Newcastle fans who have got Bobby Robson and Kevin Keegan and the history and Malcolm Allison, you know, Malcolm McDonald even, Jackie Moore. They're not willing to, again, ascribe to Allardyce Ball, but they will. The other the teams that will do are Bolton, Sunderland, you know, and to an extent Palace because they don't have a choice. They just have to stay up. And... Which now sort of leads us, you know, we're nearing the sort of conclusion bit. Let, let's look at some of the, the positives that there is for British managers. You've got Eddie Howe. I think the interesting one is uh, Ryan Fraser, the midfielder, came out with a comment saying, well, I'm reading a book about Guardiola and I'm surprised by how similar he is to Eddie Howe. And it's like, well, no, I mean, he's a modern manager and that's, you know, their, their philosophies are going to be similar. The difference is, is that... Guardiola just has a lot more resource and a, a bigger name, but he's got that talent. And the thing is, is that if you can have managed all the way up the English pyramid and look and sound a lot like Guardiola, that shows you how strong it is and the potential that is there. You've got someone like uh, Clement at Swansea. He's had, you know, he's been at Real Madrid. He's been at Chelsea. He's been at Bayern Munich, albeit as an assistant, but a high-level assistant. And it shows that there is a new way of getting to the top. That is not the same as managing Hartlepool, then Derby, then Leeds, then Brighton, as for Clough, and then Forrest, obviously. But it's that you can then have that, which is why when he's gone to Swansea, they looked pretty much doomed. 
and yet they've already turned it around. You've got Dyche, who's basically subverting some of the Premier League norms at Burnley. In other words, you know, at the moment, they're likely to stay up without virtually no away points, virtually not scoring. But he's managed to build a team that is not just effort. There, there is elements of skill that is tactical underpinning, even if at first glance he looks, and the way how Burnley play it and their success at home looks very traditional, there is an intelligent underpinning to it. There's something that is more than just, let's say, you couldn't compare him to like the Bradford team that stayed up in the late 90s under Paul Jewell. That was just, you know, there was energy of the first season, some solid signings, and a bit of luck. With Burnley, it's not the same thing. There is... They've made some good signings in grey and they've built something that seems to have a lot more foundation and a lot more probability to last. This new generation, which you know, to an extent includes sort of Rogers and Warburton, these people who have come out who haven't had playing careers, who've gone through youth systems, who've had different ways of doing it and have, have then progressed higher up the scale than people would have imagined maybe 15, 20 years ago. That shows you the, the possibility. They're flexible. You know, whereby the 90s, you know, the sort of 95, 97, that kind of group, they had success, but it wasn't likely to last. So in other words, Moyes hasn't really had any major success since he's left Everton. Because in certain respects, I mean, look, if you look at the signings he's made at Sunday, even though he doesn't have a huge amount of money, they're not interesting. They're not likely to succeed. He's just signing old Everton players again. And it's just... And his sort of attitude appears quite withdrawn. And he hasn't helped. His language has really made a bad situation even worse. But these new managers are a lot more progressive. And they're, they're getting experience. And they're more able to work with the new generation of players. They're more able to understand... Things, you know, the Europe situation, the money situation, and how to then build success through that. What they have to do, if they really want to kick on, is they then have to find a way to then do it outside of the place where they have all this power. The English managers and British managers at the moment seem to do well when they have control and the political capital and the respect of the fans and the ownership and the latitude to do well. What they have to do now, which is what the foreign managers have been able to do a lot better, is find a way of working that can succeed quickly and using the the ideology of the club where you're at. Which is why if you compare Sherwood to Pochettino, they're in virtually the same position, and yet one manager sort of you know, in Sherwood doesn't have the tactical skills. So in other words, he the team is too open. He makes too many changes. You know, he freezes out a bunch of players, and while the the success is superficial, they're beating the teams they should be. When they come up against any form of quality or tactical organization, they're battered. You know, he, he you know Levy offers him money in January. He turns it down, which looks foolhardy, and he's you know, and he's basically. You know, not parroting what the ownership want him to say. He's off-brand, he's off-message, which in some ways is refreshing, but it's not likely to build the long-term success that they want. So they go with Pochettino, who then basically 
gets rid of some of the, the underperforming players, sets up a style of play that is repeatable, gets the depth in. He's not the perfect manager. He's learning on the job because it's, you know, it's his third proper managerial role. It was Sherwood's first. But he understands what the ownership want him to do. He's like, well, okay, if we're going to have to make a profit on player trading, then that's what we'll do. And so we'll have to then utilise, you know, someone like David Pleat, who basically is advising the club and gives them Deli Alley. They then go ahead, sign him. It works. Same thing with Eric Dyer. Essentially, if you compare the money that Liverpool put in to sign Milner on a five-year contract, I think he's on about 100 grand a week, so four five-year contracts, so that's literally plus maybe four or five million pounds as a signing-on bonus, that's 25 million pounds, yet they spend three million on Dyer, five million on Ali, and if you look at their first contracts, they were probably only on maybe 20 grand, 15, 20 grand, and the cost of their four-year contracts, basically, for the relatively similar amount of money, who would you rather have? Dyer's played right back, centre-half, defence in mid, has scored goals. Ali has played, you know, all across the midfield and a little bit up front. Scored a load of goals. They're young. They have resale value. And they have the potential to get better. Milner's done perfectly fine at, you know, Liverpool. But he's not established himself as a midfielder. He's now a left-back. And that team are conceding too many goals to make him a really good left-back. And at his age, you know, it's not he's not going to get that much better. Put it that way. So... There's, there's positives, but they, they have to then kick on. They have to be able to get out of their comfort zone. So Howe's at Bournemouth. Uh, Dyche's at Burnley. Those managers then have to, you know, Southgate has to then kick on. And, you know, Clement then has to, you know, establish himself in the Premier League. I think Clement's got the best shot at it because I think he's the one who's moved around enough. He's got enough experience, enough of a name. But they all have potential. They all have bits and pieces. So if you then go to the, the negatives, you know, they still want that control, which you can't get at the big top four clubs. They're not able to change their approaches. It's a one-size-fits-all principle. It's like the same thing with Pulis at West Brom. My way or the highway. And it's not likely to then lead on to anything. In other words, it's a risk if for any of those top six teams to take on a young manager especially if that young manager hasn't shown enough flexibility and enough modern top quality coaching experience. In other words, how? In other words, to put a, a plan into effect that you can see from the first press conference and the first pre-season onwards to how they're going to build it. In other words, I can see where, where Eddie Howe could work at Arsenal, but I'm not sure how he would deal with the, the players and how he would deal with having a transfer budget, and the expectation of needing to start brilliantly well, and to put down markers, and to really, and when things go wrong, to be able to fix it. Whereby at Bournemouth, there haven't been that many problems. There's been blips, but he's never had a crowd really on his back, which is what would happen if you lose four games at United, if you lose four games at Arsenal. It becomes a crisis. But it's there. The potential is there. And um, what we've now seen is, is that the strange decline of the English manager can be explained because of the structural changes that have undergone English football since '95, whereby a lot of the experiences and the style of football has changed 
and evolved and the sports science side of it. And some of these managers who I've listed, you know, the Redknapps, Pardew, Moyes, Big Sam, Mark Hughes, Martin O'Neill, Steve Bruce, they've all had elements of success, but they've never been quite able to kick on. The closest one was probably Redknapp. And he was the one that, you know, had the most managerial experience. He'd been doing it since 85. He'd had the long spell at at West Ham. He had the personality, the media. And that's why it is a tragedy. But it also does show, shine a light on the fact that he didn't get the Tottenham job. You know, they had to go through Wande Ramos. They had to go through Martin Job. They had to give it, they gave it to a lot of other people before they even considered Redknapp. He was a stopgap who took the job and ran with it. And that does show you that actually a British manager can have success, but you also, you know, the ownership has to show a lot more nerve. In other words, do the Arsenal board have the nerve to bring in an Eddie Howe to give him that power? Because it, it, or a Clement even. Because those people have the potential. Redknapp, you know... Redknapp has skills, but he's not the greatest manager in the world. You know, by the time he's finished at Spurs, you know, his signings have gone from interesting at West Ham and radical to quite staid. You know, his last couple of signings for Spurs were like uh, Ryan Nelson and Louis Ahar. Nice players, but they weren't, you know, they were stopgaps. They were short-term signings. They weren't people that were going to kick on to the next level, which shows you that by that point, he was slowly declining, which is why when he goes to QPR, the problem is is that you know the energy's gone. He just signs a load of experienced players, more players than he needs on quite big money. He ends up with McLaren at one point in the dugout. He's got Glenn Hoddle. He just seems as if the only way that he's going to be successful is with huge amounts of help on the playing and the managerial side which really shows you that the energy was starting to flag at that point and the, I suppose, intellectual stimulus, which is why when, you know, he literally has left management and he seems a lot more happy being involved in football, but from a slightly back position in the media studio. Which then leads you to someone like Pardew, who still has potential, but obviously, you know, it's no use him and Allardyce demanding, wondering why they haven't, got these big jobs and why they haven't kicked on is that they haven't fully developed to what the managerial role is. It's not the role that Nicholson, Shankly, Ferguson, even Wenger's had. You know, you know, Arsene Wenger is the last of those managers who will have 20 years and will be able to build something from, if not the bottom, you know, from the th- third or fifth floor up to the top tower, the top floor. So what they're going to have to do is there's those skills which they which Pardew and Redknapp learned from going up the you know football league pyramid are, are going to have you know the next generation are going to have to show a different view of the manager. In other words, where there is a transfer committee, where there is a director of football, where the owner is impatient, will make their own signings, where the football club already are established, where the the ideology and the expectations are already there. And that's one of the things that Rogers was like, oh, I'm going to change the, the, the passing ideology. It's like, well, I don't think you are. I think the Liverpool history is a lot stronger than any sort of changes 
that, that you can make. But I think just, just to end is that there's still opportunities. It's just never, it's never going to be quite the same as it once was. The, 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 the shoots are changing. In other words, I think what one, I'll, I'll end it on Southgate. So that when he's at Middlesbrough the first time round, he's inexperienced, he's not particularly interesting, the signings are a bit iffy. And he takes them down. And he does okay in the first few months, he's got them fourth, but you can understand why Gibson sacks him. So he goes back, does a lot of media work, and slowly but surely he gets a bit more confident in his sort of public pronouncements. And he you know, studies quite hard and so he turns up at under twenty ones and he does a, a good job. Nothing massively spectacular, but he gets some players, gets them playing some interesting stuff. They falter at the Euros, but at the same time they were in the same group as the winners, Denmark. They were oh sorry, Sweden. They were in the same group as the Portuguese, and about half that squad ends up being part of the Euro squad that Portugal wins the tournament. So he's unlucky in that respect, and he's still got a couple of decent results. But then finally, he accidentally gets the England job. But one of the things I think that's been most interesting about him getting the England job was that he had to look at the books. He, he knows all of the secrets of the FA. He knows, you know, he's had the job for four games where he wasn't automatically expected to get the job. I think he knew he was going to take it, but there was always that out option of saying, actually, no, I want to spend time with my family, and there's nothing the FA could do. So he's probably, um, any England manager, the one who had the most knowledge of what he was getting into. So that's why when he's... And he's got a few months before his first full game in charge against the Germany. And then he turns up there. He picks an interesting squad. Puts an interesting team in an interesting formation. And they play well. The result is detail. But the thing is, is that that success and the way how he's put the ideology down shows that he's learned in the years since he was first manager. And that there is hope. In the same way that when England had success last time they played in Germany, just before the Euros, where they play the same similar sort of team, young players, and they play brilliantly well, win 3-2, but Roy Hodgson doesn't take it on. He's too stuck in his preconceptions. He's a manager looking to the past rather than the future. So instead of going, wow, Rooney didn't play and they looked a lot better, they looked a lot more cohesive, they won, he goes, well, he just doesn't have the nerve to drop Rooney, which is what could have made the England Euros a lot more likely to succeed and more interesting, get the fans more behind it. In other words, he brings Rooney back, he puts Wilshere into the school when he's not really fit and unlikely to succeed. And you get the feeling that Southgate, whereby at the start when he was interim, sort of is tiptoeing around the Rooney thing and sort of picks him, maybe even against his better judgment, by the time he's the actual full manager. He's decided, well, actually, the captaincy isn't that as important as it once was. He's dropped him. He doesn't look like he's going to pick him again. That doesn't mean he won't, but it seems unlikely now. I think he's got the mandate to do so. You know, he's starting to put a, a framework for the next great England team, which is something that, if you compare, let's say, in a different sport, 
if you compare Stuart Lancaster, who did a pretty solid job, but his teams always finished second. They always did seem to be one tough game in the Six Nations where they'd come undone with someone like Eddie Jones, who comes in and is a lot harder on the players, pushes them. Because he's got, because he has that history of being at Australia, because he's been there a lot, he has the, the authority and the mandate to push the players to drop people, even if they haven't done something that wrong, to get them to outperform what they were doing. And that's why the England team, as rugby teams, become a lot more successful. They've had this great run. They've won. They've done a Grand Slam. They've won the next tournament. They're now the second best team in the world. And there's nothing to stop Gareth Southgate getting England to there. And he's a young English manager who's learnt through the English system. So the English manager isn't quite dead yet. Thank you for listening.